God's word. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you very much. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. If I could only reach the heights of, partial heights of the men that have stood behind this podium, I consider my life a success and fulfilled. These men are, such as Dr. Towns, is quite a mentor and friend to me, and I look up to him very much. Of course, our chancellor as well, and esteemed colleagues and staff. I tell you, my biggest honor this morning, though, is to address you. I so appreciate and value the students of Liberty University. It is an incredible honor and a privilege to be able to minister to you and to contribute at least a small portion of your academic and spiritual development. I am incredibly honored to stand on this stage and you to offer me the privilege to open God's word and to guide our thinking for the next few moments on some spiritual issues. I'm very honored and frankly impressed so much with the talent here at Liberty University. I, I, I listen to these musicians. I talk to my students in class and, and, and learn of all of their skill. And I, I feel so insignificant in the uh, collegiate scene because you guys are so talented. And, um, but I just pray at least that I can make just a little contribution, that the Holy Spirit would use something from his word through me to impact you. Had a great honor Saturday uh, evening to spend my daughter, six-year-old Lauren, and I spent the day with the Lady Flames basketball team, and uh, we had a wonderful time with them, with Coach Green and the others. Uh, they treated us like royalty. We were able to sit on the floor, and um, just amazing talent as they just, I was going to say defeated. Frankly, they dominated Winthrop 71 to 56. It was and they're flying all out of bounds and doing all kinds of things. It was, it was quite a sight. Now, I left there telling my wife I was honored to be able to hang out with them. Last semester, at the beginning of the academic year, our pastor of Thomas Road Baptist Church, Jonathan Falwell, began us on a series called The Heart of a Champion. We had many men of integrity speak on topics of attitudinal issues, the heart, integrity, audacity, fidelity, fraternity and tenacity, clarity, and so on. It is this semester, on January 16th, Jonathan Falwell opened up our spring convocation on Wednesday by introducing part two of this series, not a heart of a champion, but this time the life of a champion. And he stated that because if we inculcate attitudes in our heart, we cannot help but display them outwardly. And he asked that we would draw your attention to portions of the scripture that would talk about living the life of a champion. Because those words are indeed true, that if you store them away in your heart, you cannot help but to act on them. There will be a noticeable difference. In fact, the Proverbs say in Proverbs 23, verse 7, 8, it says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Therefore, if we store the heart of a champion, then we can assume that there will be a noticeable external outward difference. Therefore, he spoke on January 16th, the life of service. It's today that I want to draw your attention to one verse out of Matthew's gospel. One verse that talks about the life of a champion, not so much an attitude or an action, but just this simple, broad fact, this principle, that the life of a champion will be a changed life. 
The life of a champion will be a changed life. I must admit that I've wrestled a little bit with this topic because as a professor and, and as a teacher and talking with many of you, I have to assess where we are in our school year and what kind of challenges that you're facing. The sermon ought not to be the same in the spring semester as it is at the beginning of the fall because we have gone through a cycle of the academic series. We've, we've seen final exams. We, some of us, have, might have transferred into the school. We have had various exposure to all the tests and finals. We've had roommates and requests to change roommates and dorms, and we, we've gone through this whole battle of life, and we, we, we know how the academic season goes, so now it's just round two. Therefore, things are a little fresh. Things are a little more rehearsed. And I'll be honest, I prayed this week. I prayed really with all my heart. And I said, God, what would you have me share? What would you have me share? And I'll tell you one thought that kept on rehearsing through my mind, this thought. The Lord just kept on telling my spirit, Ben, encouragement is in order. Encouragement is in order. So I bring you today a sermon full of encouragement. I think we're around environments and wonderful speakers that teach us the wonderful teachings of God's word and prescriptive imperatives by which to obey God. But, but I think it it do us well to just pause for one convocation and just spend this time reflecting on God's word and just with a heart of gratitude thanking him for all he's done. Because some of you are back this semester that you would not have if things left to your own plans, you would not be back here studying at Liberty University, and God has you here, and you're grateful. Some of you went home on Christmas and break and the New Year break, and you looked at the family, and you wondered how it would be like, and because of God's great encouragement and great mercy and great peace and great forgiveness, you were able to have peace, and you might have had just one of the best holidays you had. I think it, do us, it would do us well just to pause for the next few moments and to study God's word and to just be encouraged and thankful and grateful for what God has done for us. So I would like to draw your attention to one portion of scripture in the Gospel of Matthew that is full of encouragement. Yet, upon the outset, it does not seem that way. The story seems dire at first. It seems as if we're going to introduce yet once again a negative story and something that's just going to end with a negative story of someone defaulting in their lives and someone having a horrible life and someone not obeying God, but this story has a bright light at the end. And I hope my, my goal today is twofold. First of all, I want to encourage you that anybody in this room can be a champion for Christ. For God is waiting and willing to change a heart that is conformed to his will. Secondly, I also want you to focus on God's word and ask him this. God, please place your word on my heart exactly where it needs to go. I want you to take God's word, put yourself under the scrutiny of it and say, God, teach me from this one verse. Am I this person? Is my heart welling up with praise to do a little assessment and to be encouraged that anybody can live the life of a champion? The verse is found in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Our one verse says this, Jesus went on from there and saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him.
Let me read that again. Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and he followed him. What is so interesting about this verse, if you don't get it right now, here, here's the point. It is not necessarily this verse that is so poignant. It is everything that leads up to that sentence. For Matthew to write that sentence is to have, I believe, the quintessential example of God's power and how he can change a life. That one sentence, I think, is one of the most beautiful portions of Scripture to talk about how God, with his awesome power, can change a life. He can change a life. He is a testimony of a changed life. He is a trophy of God's grace. But it's all that leads up to that one sentence to where it all makes sense. That one sentence. Let me share a few facts about the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is written by a man named Matthew. I know that doesn't take a lot of rocket science to figure out. It has 28 chapters. 130 either direct quotes or allusions to the Old Testament. So this individual knows Jewish history, Jewish writings. But there is only one occurrence, one occasion where the author talks about himself. Matthew 9.9. Out of 28 verses, he brings up his name once. And it is, frankly, in the absolute worst portion of the Gospel of Matthew you could imagine. It is in the most disgraceful, the most lowly, the most shameful chapter in all of Matthew. Aside from the list of the names of the 12 disciples in Matthew 10, this is the only occurrence. This is the only time where he brings up his name. And it is horrible. If I were Matthew, writing in Matthew, the gospel, I would probably um, maybe put myself in a great chapter like Matthew 16. Matthew 16 is where Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And, Matt, and Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of living God. I, if I were writing the book, I probably would... Would have said in the next verse, and, and I, Matthew, said, amen, I believe that, and I was right there with him. No. Maybe Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration, where, where for a moment the, the glory of the Lord showed. We frankly don't quite know what happened, but their faces glowed, and they saw the Father, and Moses, and Elijah, and, and I would have said, and, and, and I stood kind of nearby watching it, and I witnessed the glory of God. No. He uses Matthew 9.9, and that's it. And it is in the worst place ever. You have to ask the question, why? Because God wanted the message of the gospel of Matthew to be filtered through and affected and infused by the passion of a man who had a horrible life, but who at the time of writing had great gratitude and thankfulness to God. He wanted Matthew, in light of his past, to be the mouthpiece for God's truth. For this book talks about a lot of end times and eschatological things of where God will conquer evil and conquer the world and he'll set his establishment. He talks about the kingdom. This book talks about forgiveness. This book talks about restoration and the dealings with evil and God's glory and holiness and forgiveness. And he wanted all of those truths to come out of the mouth of a guy that was just despised in his society. 
God can use a life that has changed. God can use you and change your life. I'd be foolish to think that there isn't at least some people here that would say, I've gone through all the fall semester, and trust me, Dr. Terrence, I've tried to be spiritually strong. I've tried to be disciplined. I've tried to have my devotions. I've tried all of these things. I've gone to the spiritual emphasis. I've gone to convocations. I've gone to prayer leaders. I've gotten my study guides. I tried to do this morning time, tried to get alone, and it's just not taking. I just can't get it. And then you look at all these worshipers, and you think of all the people in theology class that answer the questions. They know all of the scriptures, and you feel so behind, and you feel just, frankly, at this point, that you're just going to give up Trust me, trust me, friend, do not give up. Because God will take you exactly where you are and he will baby step your spiritual walk. God never gets down on someone for taking baby steps. All he wants you to do is grow. We're going to see a man that took the baby steps of spirituality and began to be the one who out of his own mouth proclaimed great truths. God can use a changed life. You can be a champion for Christ. Little statistics about a tax collector. Tax collectors were one of the most despised people in all of society. Tax collectors, in fact, they had a list of the most despised jobs in the first century. The first job was a prostitute. The second job was a tax collector. Why did they hate them so much? It's because tax collectors were ones that owed their life and gave oath to Rome. And they literally were, had that job to cheat their own countrymen. A tax collector, to, to have that job, here's what you would do. You would go over to Rome, you would, you would line up in a line, and Rome would say, we have a tax collector position. We have it on the intersection, a very, very busy intersection of Capernaum. It's like a toll booth. Everyone's got to stop at you. You get to exact taxes. And then people would actually start bidding to pay money to have the job. I know that seems foreign to you because usually we go to jobs to get money, but literally Rome would have a line of people waiting to bid the job and say, I'll, I'll promise you that I'll, I'll return to you 100 talents. And then someone says, I can do 120 talents. And someone said, I'll do 130 talents. And then finally the job went to the highest bidder. And we find that in Matthew 9.9 that Matthew was the highest bidder because he was the tax collector. You would literally pay Rome to have the job. Then you would go back to your, the location. After paying the amount all up in front, and you worked on 100% commission, and frankly, whatever you got over and above your expense was yours to keep. Rome didn't care. As long as they got their money, they didn't care what taxes you made. You, you could misweigh the weights and measures of something they're carrying and, and exact taxes on them. You could say, I believe that there are certain threads in your prayer shawl more than what you're saying. They could exact a tax on it. They could say, no, I believe that you have this many livestock. And they say, no, I don't. You say you have a full authority of Rome. Therefore, you could make taxes and make taxes. It was the most, in fact, the richest people in the first century were tax collectors. So despised were you is that Rome would turn you back to your, your little tax collector booth and they would give you two armed guards. They chose local people who would sear their conscience and not even care about who they're taxing, their own countrymen, because they said local people know what to look for. Local people know where their friends and family members are hiding. So we need someone whose conscience is seared, someone who doesn't care about their integrity. We need someone that's local, that knows the routine, that says that will pay the highest money, that will say, promise me, 
that's not a big payment because I will exact three times as much and I'll live in a mansion and I'll look square in the eyes of my family and steal their last dime. And therefore, the Jewish writings said, the Talmudic writings said, quote, it is okay to deceive and lie to a tax collector because that's what they deserve. Nice holy writing, right? They literally would exile him out of the synagogue. They literally would say that you have no right to be in the temple for worship. The parents would actually, in fact, there are reports where parents would actually hold funerals for their son if he became a tax collector. They went back and he stole from everyone. In fact, there's a verse, in fact, uh, in Luke chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, it actually says when tax collectors came to John the Baptist, the verse actually reads as follows. It says that when the tax collectors came to John the Baptist, they said, we want to be baptized. Now, what do we do? And he said, after you're baptized, don't, verse 13, don't collect any more than what's required of you. Everybody knew they cheated. And they said, once you get your life changed, once you get saved, change your ways. Once your heart gets changed, John the Baptist said, you've got to change your life. Did that stop them? No. They got death threats. Their families were shamed. They were exiled to the synagogue. You must know the synagogue is the social environment of, the, of, the, of their lives. It is, it is seven days, six days a week. It is, it is one of the most populated areas. It is literally being outcast from society. They could not involve themselves in temple worship. In fact, they promised that every tax collector upon their death as their casket would be going through the streets. That literally you had permission to throw rocks at it. It was so despised and dis- and such a disgrace. Parents would hang their heads. Parents would, would, would disown their children. They would hold funerals for them. This job was the low of the low. And it's the man who literally said, I don't care. It's all about money. It's all about money. And he didn't care about the shame that he brought. In fact, every time in the Bible, the word tax collector is mentioned. Every time the word tax collector is mentioned, it is always coupled with another word of someone who is incredibly sinful. It's always uh, coupled with prostitutes or adulterers or extortioners or sinners or wicked people or debaucherous situations. Tax collectors were the epitome of someone who was incredibly low and the most desperate and the most despair and the most wretched and the most nauseating, the most repulsive people. That is the man that wrote the gospel Matthew. In fact, if you look in your Bibles, Luke chapter 18, we have this account. Luke 18, verse 10. Two men went up to a temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. Quote, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Here comes the list. Like robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Verse 13, and the tax collector who stood afar off. This Pharisee is saying, I'm so glad I'm not like those wicked people, those extortioners, those prostitutes, those adulterers, and yeah, and like that tax collector. And he's at the temple for worship. And you notice in verse 13, the tax collector has to stand far off because he relinquished his right to enter into worship. A Jewish man not permitted to enter into the temple. A Jewish man that shamed his family. A Jewish man that said, I don't care what people see. I'll still cheat them and deceive them. I'll take the worst job in the world. That's the man God used to write the Gospel of Matthew. You know what the sad thing about this is? He knew better. 
He knew better. Matthew came from a God-fearing home. Matthew was saturated with scriptures. In fact, if you look in your Bibles at Luke chapter 5, verse 27, when other writers talk about Matthew being a tax collector, listen what they say. Jesus, Luke 5, 27, Jesus left the town, saw a tax collector, this is Luke's recount, named Levi. They don't call him Matthew, they call him Levi. Levi is his birth name. Levi means that he was literally in line for the Levitical priesthood. That's why Matthew is riddled with over 130 direct quotes or allusions to the Old Testament. He knew the scriptures, he knew what was right, he knew what was wrong, and he still threw it all away. He had every right. He was prepared to one day be trained to literally be offer sacrifices for the sins of his people. He was on his way to be trained to literally be the mo- one of the most sensitive people to sin and be the most pure of heart in his community. He was in line to literally be able to confess the sins of his countrymen, but he knew better and still he gave it all away. I cannot help but think some of us in this room who are not right now living a changed life, you know better. It's those times, it's those times in your life where you reflect on those situations that finally solidified and seared your heart and hardened your heart. And you think back to those familiar memories and you think of how you got off the path a little bit and you think about what happened and then you think how you didn't pray, you didn't confess. And then you start rehearsing those moments and it's those memories you wish you could just take away. You just wish you wouldn't have gone one step farther, but you did and you knew better. This man is at the low of the low And he was rehearsing in his mind. I knew better. Why do people continue in sin though? Because they feel they can get away like Jonah from the presence of God. Maybe God will just wink at their plight. Maybe God will just ignore them and start blessing someone else and not deal with them. We try in our own mental capacity to get away from God. And we feel like maybe he just has it. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 says that literally the heart continues to sin because God doesn't judge us immediately. We think God hasn't dropped the hammer so he doesn't care about me. We just continue in sin. And you know better. This may seem as if the story is going down. It gets worse before it gets better, but there is a bright hope at the end. After a tax collector would bid for Rome and receive the job, he would walk away and know that instantly with his bodyguards, he is an instant millionaire. But then there are records of many tax collectors literally stopping in their path and coming to their senses. Just like the prodigal son in Luke 15, where he was eating with pigs, and the verse says he just came to his senses. We have records of tax collectors literally with one little remaining inkling of integrity in their mind and compassion. They literally said, I I have just entered into a deal that will shame my wife, my family, my children, all of my blessings, all the things in life that God's going to give me, all my social life. I have just shamed that. And so many tax collectors had a plan. They began in secret asking around for someone who would sit at that table for them. 
They still wanted the money, yet they wanted to save from the sinful shame, the repercussions of their sin. They still quite didn't give up all the things that were wrong about what they did, but they, but they, but they knew that it was wrong, so they didn't want their face to be known. So they would start to talk around real quietly. Who do you think will sit at the table? Who do you think won't mind if anyone sees them? Who is shameless? Who has no conscience at all? And if you look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, our verse again. Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus went from there, and he saw Matthew sitting at the tax collector's table. Matthew had no shame. Matthew was a hired gun. He had his own tax collector situation, but he didn't mind. He didn't mind the shame. He didn't want to give a cut to anyone else. He didn't want to protect his testimony. He didn't care about the reputation. He was at the low of the low, so lascivious that he just sat there and said, I don't care who sees me. I don't care. I'm so, I wanted to just wallow in my sin. I don't care if I shame my family, my home, my life. This guy's conscience is so hardened and so seared. It was all about money and I don't care what God says. I don't care what's right. I don't care about shaming my family. I just want my desires. And Matthew was sitting there. Matthew, why in the world is this the only comment you make about yourself? Why do you bring up the fact that not only are you a tax collector, not only do you mind cheating your own countrymen, not only do you mind just getting rich on your own countrymen and you lie and deceive, you've given up your temple worship, you've given up synagogue worship, you literally, you've given that all up, and you're not afraid of saying that you were literally the face at the table, looking square in the eye, cheating your own countrymen. Matthew, why are you telling us this? Where is there a place where you tell us your life got right? Come on, there's got... Why, are, why is this the only sentence you're telling us? And Matthew says, I'll tell you why. Because I put this right into a chapter that talks all about sick people needing forgiveness. And I wanted to share my testimony in my life. If you look at the beginning of the chapter, you see three words that repeat in Matthew chapter 9 over and over and over and over again. The words are sick, then sins forgiven. You see it again. Sick sinners forgiveness. Sick sinners forgiveness. All throughout Matthew chapter 9. I read quickly. Follow me. Matthew 9 verses 1 and following. Jesus got off the boat, crossed over, came to his own city. Then he beheld them that brought a paralytic one on the bed. Jesus saw their faith, saying to the paralytic man, son of be a good cheer, your, here we go, sins are forgiven you. Verse 3, at the same time, the scribes murmured and said, this man blasphemes. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Verse 5, is it easier to say, here we go again, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk, but that you may know that I have power on earth to, here we go again, forgive sins. Then he said to the man that was paralytic, arise, take up your bed and walk. You look at verse 10 and jump there after our verse. It came to pass that as Jesus sat at the table in the house, many tax collectors and, here we go again, sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with, here we go again, tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, verse 12, he said to them, those that are well do not need a physician, but those who are, here we go, sick, go and learn this. I have mercy, not sacrifice. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Sick, sick, Sinners forgiven, sins forgiven, sins forgiven. Verse 10, sinners, sinners, sins, forgiveness, repentance, and right in the middle. Matthew offers his life's testimony. 
I, Matthew, was the worst sinner ever. I was sitting at the, at the tax collector's table. I was the lowest of the low. My conscience was so seared. But then, God walked up to me and gave me another opportunity to live again. And I heard his words. And I took him up and followed him. God gave me the opportunity to live again. My life is shameful. My life is full of shame and despair. But right in the middle of my despair, he walked up and gave me an opportunity to live again. And my friend, God can give you the opportunity to live your life again as a champion for Christ. It doesn't matter your spiritual walk up to now. He will forgive you and restore you and make you a champion for Christ right now. And out of your mouth can utter truth of change. Out of your mouth can change your heart. That's why it is of no surprise that in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, this man says, For what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? For what does it profit a man if he were to gain the whole world? And I've tried. And lose his soul. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. I don't care your background. God can use you. Nothing is impossible with God. I've seen people engrossed in sin. God can change you. I've seen, I've seen people harbor familiar, unfortunate memories for a long time. I'm telling you, God can wash them away. Nothing is impossible with God. I've seen people engrossed in sin. I've seen some of us, when we have prayed on my office floor, and we have literally seen the moment where God has released you from the bonds of being tied and bound to that familiar sin. Nothing is impossible with God. I've seen God give some of you some cravings for God's word and purify your mind through his word. I'm telling you, we have both witnessed nothing is impossible with God. I have seen him heal families. I have seen the Holy Spirit stop the dad from hitting his children. I've seen a sick-driven wife come home. I have actually seen the very moment a prodigal son has come home. I'm telling you, nothing is impossible with God. God's power is great. He is too good. He is too kind. He is too loving to leave you where you're at. It may be a hard course and a hard path to start, but nothing is impossible with God. He never wishes ill will upon you. He never wishes ill or desires of any kind other than what is for your benefit. Nothing is impossible with God. If God can create the world, if God can put the stars in the sky, if God can die on the cross, if he can save fallen man, if he can give us undeserved grace, undeserved merit, undeserved mercy, if he can take this man and break his heart and cause me to hunger and thirst after righteousness, then I tell you, no, I testify to you that nothing, absolutely nothing, is impossible with God. Nothing. Nothing. He is too good. He is too kind. He is too loving. He can change you. It's hard. But he can change you. He wants to change you. Don't compare. 
Don't contrast. Just right now. God, I want to start right now. You can be a champion for Christ.